I appreciate your directness. Now let me be direct with you. The mines stay. I will not allow any more Dominion reinforcements through the wormhole. You will not allow? You heard me. I can see how that might be your first reaction. But you and I are reasonable men, and surely reasonable men can come to some sort of mutually acceptable compromise. I didn't think the Dominion believed in compromise. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the promenade. This is Tyler Orton on a total Ractigino caffeine high because I get to talk all about Deep Space Nine. Yeah, we've been doing a whole streak of that lately, haven't we? A lot of DS9 topics. It, you know, I'm part of it, I'm guilty, Cam. I am doing my rewatch. I'm kind of been more inspired. You know, as I go through series and I watch episodes at random, I'm always kind of inspired by what I'm getting to see. So maybe that's a little bit my fault. But um, Cam, does anyone actually complain about DS9 discourse? Um. No, not that I've ever experienced. Maybe if we went like all Enterprise all the time, you might hear someone be like, like, I like Enterprise well enough, guys, but can we talk about TNG occasionally or something? But no, I think DS9 is pretty beloved. I think DS9 might, don't quote me on this, but I think it might have the highest IMDb score for Star Trek too, which I thought was kind of interesting. Okay, okay. They've got... Maybe it's just, like, less of a polarizing series than some of the others. Like, I can understand... Look, Voyager has rabid fans. That Indiegogo yeah. campaign, you know, that, that the biggest Indiegogo campaign ever. I, I, I get that. But I also wonder if they have some detractors that maybe just Deep Space Nine does not have. And maybe the same goes for Enterprise, too. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think, actually, TNG is probably the highest. But, yeah, DS9 is very high. And it's definitely, yeah, higher than, yeah, TNG is higher, but um, it's it's higher than, yeah, your Voyagers, your Enterprises, and uh, not surprisingly, Discoveries, but. Yeah. I, Cam, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but don't you find it frustrating, you know, a, a, as a podcast host for Star Trek, and there are people that want to jump on our show, but they only want to talk about Star Trek The Next Generation? Very common. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, everyone wants to talk about uh, those classic episodes of TNG. Um Fistful of Datas, uh, episodes <laughs> like that. <laughs> yes. Man of the People. Man of the People, Sub Rosa. Skin of um, Evil. Really just the entire first season of TNG is what we get the most requests for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah too, too short a season. Episodes like that. Um, we'll always have Paris. Episodes like that are what people really want to talk about in discourse with Star Trek. But it is very true. TNG is the one people seem to have the most enthusiasm to talk about. But this week, we are going to talk about ranking the Deep Space Nine seasons. We've never done this before, and DS9, I think, is a lot tougher to rank than even TNG or TOS were. Okay, because I feel confident about my rankings, except for there are two seasons that I am still in debate about. And you and I have agreed that we have to come to a consensus here. And it, it's going to be interesting as we go through them one by one from worst to first. 
uh, hopefully, I, I, you and I are usually kind of on the same page about things, but if you're kind of struggling, and, and the reason you're struggling is because, like, let's be honest, like, there are just so many great episodes, like, throughout Deep Space Nine's run. But the thing that I've realized, like, as we've been doing this series of ranking episode, uh, ranking seasons from the ongoing shows, it's like, I am kind of leaning towards kind of the holistic side of the season. Like, what do I get out of it as a whole? And I know you have this ranking system where it's like episodes that are just standout episodes versus the ones that are like, eh, and the ones that are just like kind of so-so. So I think you and I are kind of evaluating them on a little bit kind of different sort of grading schemes. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shapes our own rankings of the seasons as well. It will be, although we should note that so far we've mostly agreed, I think, on our ratings of both TNG and early Star Trek. Well, you did kind of like push hard, I think, in the TNG episode um, for seasons one versus seasons two. I think you pushed oh, yeah. harder for seasons two, for season two is better than season one. Um, that's the only one that maybe I, I, I gave you a little bit of uh, leeway on. Maybe I kind of regret uh, being so nice to you, which, you know, you, you're used to me being so nice to you. So, I, I, <laughs> you know, I get it. I think I was making the biggest argument that season one TNG should be the greatest season because that's where the discourse <laughs> for Star Trek is right now. Hey, you know, too short a season, Cam. <laughs> but why I find DS9 tough is because you've, you're doing a rewatch fairly recently. Um, and actually, I'm still working through, right? Where are you right now? I'm in midway through season three. I'm kind of stuck because um, the next episode up, and it's been like this for about 12 days, is Meridian. Mm. And I just can't bring myself to... There, there's so many other things that I've been watching lately that it just it, I can't get over that Meridian hump right now. Right. But for me, when I look at, say, TOS, each season feels very different to me. When I look at TNG, there's some really strong dividing lines, especially, you know, you separate those first two. Um, season seven kind of has a different feel than the rest. I find it easier to break up, whereas DS9, there are definitely markers to specific seasons, but I find just the overall arc of the entire story of DS9 tougher to break into parts than I do with the other ones. I think that's a very, very valid point because it's like, how do you just say, well, you know what, chapter five is a far more important chapter than say chapter seven and it because it is very much like a show that i think you have to absorb holistically because everything is building up and building up and so they're planting the seeds for things that'll pay off later and you have to appreciate what they're doing but the thing i realized as, as i was going through the episodes is deep space nine excels at just having pretty solid pretty consistent seasons i think this might be the most consistent series out of all of the ones we have in all of star trek well i mean no spoiler or anything really to say this but there's not a bad season of ds9 like you can uh, look at uh tng well, we'll talk about it in a sec but like you look at say seasons one and two of tng pretty bad and uh i don't know that there's anything like that with ds9 there's some bad episodes i'm sure we'll laugh about that you know take part in some of these seasons but there's not like an across the board bad season of ds9 i i'm really looking forward to us doing our rankings for voyager as well because i, I look at voyager and maybe there is that certain delineation point where seven of nine comes aboard and like oh they're really doing some new interesting storytelling and i think that also is a signal that 
Brandon Braga, for example, is taking over as showrunner, more into the high concept stuff. But I wouldn't say like season one of Voyager is like a bad season the way that I would say that TNG season one or TOS season three, like overall, or if I'm being honest, Discovery season three is say not a great season. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very true. Um, and Voyager's one that I remember finding really exciting when I started season one. I think it'll be interesting to talk about, but Voyager is one where you can't, again, it's not that TNG factor. It's not like season one where you're like, well, there's one good episode in like 24 or 26 or whatever season one of of TNG was. Like it just doesn't have that sort of um, really clunky beginning. Well, you know what? Why don't we take it off from there, Cam? Let's start, you know, worst to first. Uh, we have to come to a consensus. So I just want to hear from your perspective, what would you, and it's not like it's a bad season. We get that people, but what would you rank at the bottom of your list here? So I had season one of DS9. Um, it's, again, it's a good season. It introduces us to the world. But as you said, like I kind of break them down to my four categories and I have got, you know, the top tier, which is the hell yeah episodes, but there's one and that's duet. There's other really good episodes throughout the season, but it feels like a show that's struggling to exactly nail down what makes their story special. A lot of them still feel like that sort of TNG alien of the week, or they don't feel as character driven as what we'd get going forward. I I agree with you in in that, they haven't quite nailed down what the show is supposed to be week to week in like, instead of, Hey, we're on a starship. Oh, Hey, we're on a space station. And I think they actually figure it out as this show goes on. You're getting more of the recurring characters, the more recurring storylines, but it's kind of difficult to pull off if you're right at the beginning of it all. You haven't been able to kind of plant those seeds uh, that you'll be able to cultivate later on. I just have to say, I think Emissary is a very solid premiere, though. It establishes the universe. It establishes the characters very well. It, you know, gives you room to breathe. Um, There's some stuff we can criticize. Like, I I don't know if Ben was introduced in the best way in which he is (laughs) crapping on fan favorite Jean-Luc Picard throughout the entire thing. But... Kim, you mentioned a duet, and I think that, you know, in the hands of the prophets, that that's a fascinating one to me because it really spells out what the series is kind of pushing towards, and that it doesn't want to tell the same kind of, you know, shipbound stories. It's willing to settle into a location, dive into the politics of a alien species that is not quite analogous to humanity. It's very spiritual. It is still coming out of that conflicted side of its development that we don't have with humanity um i just think the mileage varied a lot for viewers when it came to those bejor stories and i think eventually like they got some pushback from the studio about it and i recall um reading my nitpickers guide to the galaxy that was like a great series of books just like kind of picking apart like uh you know like kind of like continuity errors or production errors episode by episode of tng deep space nine etc and the writer of that he eventually came around and started calling those particular bejor heavy episodes he called them um bejor colon terak nor episodes which i kind of appreciate <laughs> it's funny because i remember watching it the first time season one and i don't know that it jumped out to me as like bizarre that they were doing all these bejor stories 
what did jump out more was like it didn't seem like they found the angle yet as to why Bajor was interesting. So it was like in the hands of the prophets is getting there. Like they have finally figured out an angle on this. That's interesting. Um, but you just had like weird episodes where it was more just like tied into like a conspiracy on Bajor or something like it was just these weird standalone stories that weren't particularly engaging. And you had stuff like battle lines with Kyle Paka. And it's like, okay, like I've been introduced to this character who apparently is very important in the pilot. And now I'm like spending an episode with her on a prison colony. Like what is going on? I still like how Jonathan Banks was like the main guest star in that one after Kai Opaka. And it's like, and he's still doing the Jonathan Banks voice that we know from like Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. I'm just like, he, he just seems kind of plucked out of an entirely different universe in Star Trek at that point. And he has like flowing locks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's like that is pretty much bad casting for me. I mean, I love Jonathan Banks, um, but it feels like he's an actor with a very specific vibe, and it is not space alien. Okay, Cam, I'm not going to push back on this season one. Um, that's what I ranked as the seventh best season of Deep Space Nine. Um, I'll jump over to the next season. Um, next up for me is season two. That that might seem kind of obvious because we're talking about how you know Deep Space Nine is all about you know planting seeds. Things will you know bear fruit later on. But really, Cam, what stands out for me here is we get this three part premiere. We've never seen anything like that before in Star Trek. I don't ever picture TNG trying to pull this off. And I think it's because the writers are thinking, look, we are a stationary series, no pun intended, but let's figure out like how we kind of balance kind of the high concept stuff with the fact that we are close to a very conflicted world, which is Bajor. And I, I just think it's interesting that they would try to do something like this where I don't know what the three-part episode of you know, Next Generation or TOS would necessarily be where we'd be invested in what's going on because it would have to pay dividends for later on in the series. Yeah, I'm trying to think of TNG two-parters, which is the one most likely to be extended to a three-parter? Probably best of both worlds, right? But guess what? Like, th this kind of... We've talked about it. Like, it yeah. goes over people's heads. Part two is not, like, a great, like, conclusion. Like, it's a fantastic part one yeah but it is just so exposition heavy so story heavy whereas you know part one is just such a great character study of Riker I just I can't imagine stretching that out to like three episodes like I might even have fun with like Times Arrow like a three-parter <laughs> there you know like you'd get that hangout factor right didn't they want that to be like a six episode arc or something that, that, that quote from like Ron Moore made no sense to me because he's just like, yeah, I want to spend like half the season. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I guess Chain of Command, you could make more complex even and do a three-parter out of that. It just, look, if you just have like an entire episode with, you know, we don't know the fate of Picard until he meets up with Gul Madred. And it's just like maybe part two is entirely devoted to one Captain Jellicoe as the tyrant captain Ooh. of the Enterprise. That could actually be like a great three-parter as well. Oh, wow. Now you've, this is really exciting. Let's get that fan fiction script going. The in-between episode. But <laughs> getting back to DS9, <laughs> this three-parter is really strong. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is definitely different. Because you look at like season one, you've got episodes like If Wishes Were Horses or The Storyteller. Like those feel like bad TNG kind of episodes. Um, 
whereas this like kickoff to season two felt so different. And I agree with you. I had this as my um, next in line season as well for season two being, uh, I guess the, um, the sixth best season, but you go across the line, like there's episodes I don't really care for, but they feel of a whole, like it feels like the show has defined what it is right from this three-parter off the top. And so while you might get a weak one, you know, mixed in there like Melora or something, um, they still feel like DS9 whoa, 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 whoa. Just because she comes from a planet with like a lower level of gravity doesn't mean she's weak, Cam, okay? <laughs> Look, Melora is not even a terrible episode. It's just an okay one. But like there's a few mixed in there like Sanctuary or Second Sight with the disappearing woman that Cisco falls in love with. That feels like such a early <laughs> DS9 thing for Cisco <laughs> to be doing. But it's like these don't feel like they basically okay, okay. Re- sorry can i just like yeah can, can i defend second sight for a moment though you know i don't even hate the, it so go ahead but <laughs> the, the the production values i cannot imagine how much money they spent on that episode in which they literally have a moment where they go up and it's the only time they go up to the upper pylon and mm. we get to the pov view of what it is to look at deep space nine from one of the upper pylons and they also must have spent a fortune on like the ship that the disappearing woman well like her analog kind of character and husband are living on and it's just like i i cannot imagine how much money they dumped into this and i think as they were trying to give cisco like a really solid romance episode and it just like i it kind of it it was a bit of a dud for me though it's a dud but it's not a bad episode no no i'm happy to watch it it feels like it's from very early goings with DS9, but I don't I don't dislike it that much. I'm just saying like, yeah, all these episodes feel like DS9 episodes. And I guess we should note this was season two was when Iris Stephen Bear really came into his own and started to steer the ship more so than season one. So you can see that he has a vision. Things are coming into place. Um, we're just kind of working out the kinks. Well, Michael Piller did say, like, I, I was looking through my Deep Space Nine companion, and he said that they had a hard time figuring out Cisco's character in season one. And in season two, they eventually settled on him being the quote-unquote builder. Mm. I'm curious, Cam, is, when you think of Cisco, do you think of him as the builder? No, I tend to go more the like the prophet element than the builder. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like I mostly associate him with being that guy who has that very, very slow embrace of becoming a spiritual symbol for Bajor as Emissary. I think it doesn't really come around until like end of season four, beginning of season five. And the other thing I associate him more with is, is that contrast he has in Picard as someone who's willing to take extreme measures, you know? So. I get what they're trying to go for, but it also means that, like, all of season one, they they really didn't know what they were doing with the character, even if they made a conscious effort to make him kind of the builder character in season two. Yeah, he often feels like much more of almost like a war tactician sometimes, too, uh, which was not the case with other captains. I'm I'm curious, though, just in season one, you did a rewatch fairly, you know, that season fairly recently. What do you think was, like, maybe the episode or two that really stand out as they don't know who Cisco is yet? Um, there are moments in, like, say, an episode like Babel, which it has moments that I like where it's him trying to reassure Jake about, you know, even though people can't communicate with each other as well, that I think are solid. I, I keep thinking, like, every time there's a Jake Sisko moment, 
in Deep Space Nine, it's just like, oh, this is really what, you know, Avery Brooks is excelling at here. And this is what the writers are really good at writing for. But there's just kind of moments where it's just like, what is Cisco doing? What is his role in solving the problem that's going on aboard the station? You know, like that's, those are, I think they had a tough time figuring out what his role in fixing the week to week problems were, you know? Well, it feels like season one, two, they were kind of taking a very simplistic approach. Not so much with the pilot, where it very much establishes him as like this guy who's going to be de- dealing with spirituality and grief. I think that stuff's strong. But you see even from, you know, in the pilot, they are putting him opposite Picard. And then later in that season, you have Q-less, where it's him punching out Q and Q being like, Picard would never do that. So it felt like they were just like, okay, well, he's edgier than Picard. But we don't have much more than that. Yeah. Um, just a couple standout episodes for me. You know, you, you got Garrick in The Wire, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also planting the seeds again in an episode like Necessary Evil, where we have the flashback to Tarek Nor, and we kind of realize, oh, Odo is in love with Kira, even though that's not how kind of the writers or the actors necessarily intended, but they realize that, well, that's what was manifesting on screen. And it came out, I think the Jem Hadar is like a pretty solid, you know, finale for Deep Space Nine as well. Yeah, I mean, DS9 doesn't do the, like, epic finales that TNG did, but they would have their, often these standalone episodes that had a huge impact on things going forward, and Jem'Hadar is a really good one. Uh, also worth noting um, was we had a couple notable events this season. We had the introduction of the Mirror Universe coming back with Crossover, which would pave the way for some really good adventures and some really questionable adventures. <laughs> sure. More on those later. We also had the... Dick Mac- Fontaine exists in the mirror universe as a human being, Cam. <laughs> we also had the McKee two-parter, which would um, open up some avenues for really compelling stories going forward. Yeah. Um. Okay, sir. What would rank as your fifth best season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine? So far, we have you know season one, season two. What What's next up for you? I hate to be predictable, but I came down on season three. What about you? Same here, man. Same here. And yeah. I, I think it goes to show you kind of what a progressive show, and I mean that not in the terms of kind of socially progressive, but in terms of storytelling wise, and that it is just building on top of what came before. But I, I, I'm totally with you. Why is this one, say, superior to you versus seasons one and two? Well, because it has my favorite episode, Meridian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, moving on, uh, Cam, uh, let, let, let's rank the next season after that. There's no Meridian. It's, it's somehow worse inexplicably. Um, no, this season is, again, it's refining what's working. You look at some of these episodes you have, like um, House of Cork, one I really like a lot. It feels like they're nailing down how to tell great Cork stories. The Improbable Cause Die is cast. We are doing amazing things with Garrick. It feels like... They are ready to just run with these characters. You get the search two-parter kicking off the season where we get to be introduced to the founders and have Odo reconnect with the, you know, all of his people and the Great Link and all that sort of stuff, plus set up all the Dominion War to come. It feels like the show, they've kind of, you know, figured out the kinks in season two, and now we're going to really launch the mythology that's going to basically be the stories fans talk about to this day. Isn't it fascinating that they kick off season two with a three-parter and they kick off season three with a two-parter in which they're really establishing that, you know what, this series is maybe 
gearing up towards more of a big bad, which would be the mm-hmm. Dominion. And they're tying it into a character that we're very fond of, which is Odo, which just kind of adds to the conflict both eternally and externally that the series is going to pursue for the rest of its run. I think it's just kind of a genius storytelling part. But I remember watching that episode at the time and not really grasping the significance of the Dominion and what role it would play moving forward and how integral Odo's story would be in the series as well. But watching it again, just, you know, in my most recent rewatch as well as all the recent well, the other rewatches I've done over the last, you know, 25 years or whatever. Like, this one is just kind of... They're very good at telegraphing things in ways that might creep up on you in an unexpected way later on in other viewings. It's funny, though. The Search is an episode I remember uh, being very excited to watch because I think I saw... I think they had, like, the trailers or something on the um, DVD. Uh, I think that's what it was. And I just saw what the the gist of it was, and I was so excited. I think I just sat and watched the search immediately after the episode I just finished, and um, it, I was so in love with that episode. And it's the sort of thing, though, they establish a dominion, and it's just a word to you at that point. It's the type of episode that gains so much more power once you finish the series and you go <laughs> back and rewatch it, and you're like, oh my god, like they were just laying everything out. And really, really well. Like, think of how many franchises, I don't care whether you're talking TV or movies, when there's a mythology, how it's often like bumpy and being set up really clunkily, and then they have to figure out and course correct. That was not the case here. Like, it really feels like they had an idea of what they were doing early on, even though I think they've always said they didn't really. Yeah, well, I I like in that it's organic storytelling in which they might have broad strokes what they want to accomplish, but they're going to see where the characters take them, where the story naturally takes them. Whereas I I think one of our complaints about, say, Discovery in the the most recent season, at least, was like, it seems as if they're kind of reverse engineering what the, you know, how the season's going to go based on what they want the conclusion to it be, where I just don't think it's kind of organic storytelling, where Deep Space Nine, I, I would not... Well, there's some exceptions, but I'd say for the most part, it's never guilty of inorganic storytelling as well. No, it doesn't feel like uh, they decided, okay, in the finale, Odo is going to, you know, kill another changeling. Now we need to completely um, engineer the entire season around that. Yeah. You can say that maybe they had that in mind because you have him meeting his people at the start, but it doesn't feel like that is what is pulling this entire season like there's, as I said, you've got that two-parter that's involving Garrick. It feels like it's really giving each of the characters on the station a lot to do and stories that bring out the best in them. Discovery only gave stories that brought out the best in one character, really. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I just think it's worth noting that this is the introduction of the Defiant, which I think is kind of a notable turning point for the series. You know, I think Jadzia gets promoted to Lieutenant Commander. We've got, like, uh, new comm badges ahead of Star Trek Generations release in the fall. Um, I will say this, though. I, I'm a little underwhelmed by the finale, which is the adversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cisco, it, like, it just seems like such a small story when it seemed as if big things had been leading up to this. And you mentioned it. You know, you know, you know Odo kills another changing, the first one to ever do harm to another of his species. Um, you know, I, 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 I do appreciate at least they're giving so Cisco that, you know, fourth pip on his collar. 
Um, I just, I don't think, and I think you kind of alluded to it, Isla, like, Deep Space Nine finales, not usually their strength, in my opinion. I think for me, a little bit of the problem with the adversary is that when I look at the other finales, and I'm just measuring them against each other versus like TNG finales. Um, when I look at In the Hands of the Prophets um, or um, um, the Gem Hadar, they feel like very specific DS9 stories. Like, whereas the adversary has this whole kind of, it feels often just like an homage to the thing. Um, it doesn't feel like it's just doing its own unique DS9 thing. And I wonder if that sort of story would have been better placed elsewhere in the season and just going out on a more proper, pure DS9 story versus something that's a little bit of a riff. Well, the good news for me when I was watching at the time is that even if I was a little bit underwhelmed by that finale, I knew that I had the Voyager season one finale the next week, and that would just blow me away. <laughs> and for those that don't remember that finale, Tyler, what was it? <laughs> Learning Curve, in which... Tuvok runs laps with the former Maquis members uh, for about 60% of the episode. <laughs> and I'm just looking, though, at like the lists of this season for season three. You had episode like Facets, which I think they were kind of clunky in figuring out Jadzia stories earlier on. Um, you know, the episode Dax is fine, but it ain't great earlier on in the run. But like when you get to facets, we're getting to actually delve into the mythology of this character in a way that feels more confident. Like it feels like they know what the angle of this character is. And I'd referenced House of Quark. It feels like they're figuring out Quark stuff. Um, I think Bashir is still a little shaky when we've got episodes like Distant Voices where his I like I oh, I know you defend that, Distant Voices. That's one of my guilty pleasures. Like that and Move Along Home. Those are two of my Deep Space Nine <laughs> guilty pleasures. I don't care. I don't care. I will argue that Distant Voices is not one of Bashir's proudest moments on the show. <laughs> he gets pummeled with tennis balls as an old man, Cam. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> um, this also is a very notable season in that we see the uh, the end of Vedic Baral and the arrival of Shakar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I, okay, well... Um... I, I'll just point out, like, you mentioned the two-parter in Probable Cause, Dies Cast, big feature for Garrick. And the thing is, like, I, I've mentioned a couple times over the last few weeks, but my, my girlfriend, she's doing her first time ever watch of Deep Space Nine. I had not, you know, kind of built up Garrick in any way, I, you know. Um, it was just interesting to me as the series progressed. She kept, like, texting me and, like, saying, like, oh, this character's awesome. And, you know, in an episode like The Search, where, like, they're having kind of um, the founders take over their brains in kind of this dream state, and we witness Garrick's death, she was, like, really, really worried that that was the end of Garrick. Like, it's just interesting how this character just is able to draw people in, even those that might not be super familiar with kind of Star Trek and all those characters. I mean, I this, he had the same effect on me, where early on i just was like who is this character and i would get excited when he did pop up and i i just would be hard pressed to imagine someone who sat down and you know seriously decided to go through ds9 and wasn't like enraptured by that character one other thing that you just mentioned that i, I want to bring up and i think it's really interesting is you talked about kind of the mythology of some of these characters and i think like every single character except for maybe one 
has a mythology tied to her or to him. You know, even Ezri Dax, it's tied to that whole Dax mythology, Worf as well, you know, with like the whole Klingon House of Moog mythology. Sisko, of course, with the prophets. The one character that I, I don't think really has that kind of mythology, though, is maybe Jake Sisko. But every other character, I think... I could say this character has mythology, whereas I don't know if Jordy LaForge necessarily has mythology tied to him. I would say O'Brien's is maybe a little thinner, but there is something there. It's still the, he gets tortured all the time. He's yeah. the everyman with a family. Like, I, I would still make the argument, I, I agree with you, like, maybe a little bit thinner, but I still would argue that he has a mythology. And even with Bashir, you get the whole, you know, genetic engineering mythology tied to him in the last half of the series. And here we get his fear of being old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I can relate to, to well, be fair. Maybe that's a very relatable episode for me now. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Cam, okay. So here's, if we're jumping over the next season, so far we've ranked them, you know, one, two, three, from worst to first. Here's the debate going on in my head. Uh-huh. And I want you to help me through this because I am somewhat pliable but I think I know what the answer is, and I'm debating whether the next best season is season four, which is the debut of Worf, or if it is, in fact, season seven, which is the conclusion of the series. I am leaning towards season seven as oh, the fourth best season of Deep Space Nine. My mind is not 100% made up. I, I, I want to hear what your thoughts. Maybe it's not season four. Maybe it's not season seven. Where are you at with rankings at this point? So I had season four next. Um, and for me, it really comes down to this is the season where, and again, like now we're talking really about the, the great seasons where it's just like a string of great episodes. But um, for me, season four was difficult because when I saw Way of the Warrior, I'm like, well, clearly this must rank very highly. But at the same time, it's the season where we kind of got a little distracted. We focused on this Klingon, um, you know, story for the season that didn't really resolve in that exciting a way. Where it's just like, okay, well, we'll sign them back into the, you know, sign the treaty again. Well, um, literally, Galron puts his thumbprint on a pad. Yeah. And like, all the hostilities are over. Yeah. So to me, four was next largely for that reason. Whereas with seven, um, everything to do with that final run the final chapter is just so unbelievable that i just couldn't really put the two of them side by side so this is where my internal conflict emerges in that i think like ultimately season seven sticks the landing but i look at season four and i just keep thinking that there are way more episodes that i adore Mm -hmm. all throughout season four then I feel the same way with season seven. Like the the episodes that I adore in season seven, they're fewer, and I it's not as if the quality drops off significantly, but there's just fewer of the standout episodes, I should say. I think I I look at that ten episode final chapter, and I feel a little mixed on this. You know, it was it was captivating to me because it kicks off with things like. Previously on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which was something we'd only seen with two-parters, but it was kind of prevalent in that era with serialized dramas like ER or NYPD Blue. And when I first saw that, 
I was on Deep Space Nine. I was like, oh, wow, they're turning this into like a legit like adult drama at the time. But there, there's something about... I, I should notice that they, they got rid of those previously on Deep Space Nine after about like two episodes. Hmm. But um, there's something about the final 10 episode run where it's like there, there's some loose fat there, you know? And, and like, it could have been like they could have wrapped up some of these storylines for recurring characters early on. Like Rama's Negus, I think that could have replaced Extreme Measures you know, with Sloan and Section 31. And maybe we could have wrapped up all the Pa Wraith stuff in the penultimate episode, Dogs of War, versus, uh, you know, spending, like, I think way too much time in the finale in the fire caves, you know? It's stuff like that where it just didn't land for me, those final 10 episodes, the same way the more compact six-episode arc to kick off season six really landed for me. And... I wasn't quite as blown away by the finale, you know, what you leave behind, as I was by All Good Things. But that's unfair. All Good Things is one of the all-time great finales ever, and I think Deep Space Nine had way more do, like to do to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm ultimately more satisfied with the conclusion of Deep Space Nine than I am with TNG. So that's just kind of the, the 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 ongoing conflict I have between seasons four and season seven in my ranking right now. Yeah. And I totally get it, because when I look at season four, you've got, you know, just this string of great episodes. I mean, how do you rank a season that has, like, The Visitor and Way of the Warrior low down, or in the middle, I guess? But um, it feels weird to me. It was just like, again, it's the Klingon season. It it feels like it's distracting from what makes this show so special. But don't you think it's amazing that despite the studio interference they were able to deliver in ways that you just never think, you know, even like you mentioned like two great episodes, like two of my all time top 10 deep space nine episodes all in one season. But you also have like the smaller stories like bar association with Quark and everybody forming a labor union in his bar, which is absolutely amazing, but it's also very prescient and applicable to what's going on today. But there's also just fun stuff like Little Green Men or even like Arman Bashir. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what other series could ever accomplish that. And I also think like, man, Worf, he was always meant to be on Deep Space Nine rather than TNG, right? Oh, yeah. It feels like a show that actually understood Worf. I never could figure out why TNG didn't do more with him because you'd get some really good Worf episodes here and there, but then a lot of the time he just did nothing. It, it felt like a waste of resources. Well, I, I just, I had forgotten how little they did with Worf when I did my TNG rewatch uh, a couple years ago, because in my head, I, I just assumed that they had done just as much with him in TNG as they did with Deep Space Nine, but that is simply not the case. But I think we debated a couple, you know, dozen episodes, maybe 100 episodes back about um, whether... You know, Deep Space Nine is obviously something like geared towards bringing in the the uh, outsiders and, and misfits. And whether it would have been like Jordy or Data that could have been like a good fit as like another outsider character on that station. But who from like other series would have kind of fit in well with the Deep Space Nine crew, Cam? Hmm. From other series would fit in well with the DS9 crew. Uh, I'm, I'm tr- racking my brain for a Voyager character. Just uh, it wouldn't have worked in terms of uh, obviously timelines and what have you. I'm just trying to think of who would be an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Fit. Forget all that. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah. like uh, you know, you know, a character I just would have liked to have seen put in there just to see what would happen would be Chakotay, a character who I feel like struggled on Voyager, 
but he has this McKee background. What is it yeah. like to put him next to Ben Cisco on the DS9 station? It feels like they would have had maybe some we know Chakotay can be great. You know, you look at Scorpion or, you know, we've said this a billion times, but the two-parters, he comes to life. Could you get more material like that out of him in a serialized story going on on DS9? I think that could have been a lot of fun. And and stay with me. I think the other character that could have been a lot of fun as maybe like a freighter captain who is always going back and forth through the wormhole, Neelix. I think you could have brought like a lot of interesting kind of Neelix stories to the forefront while he's still kind of a, a bit of a dorky character. I think we were kind of missing, you know, the uh, freighter captain uh, up until we got, you know, Cassidy Yates. Yeah, totally. Although when you said uh, cargo ship, I was thinking you were going to say Mayweather's brother. <laughs> <laughs> On uh, What was the name? The Horizon, I believe. Yeah, the Horizon. The yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh my yeah. God, he's really going uh, down the, the rabbit <laughs> hole here. Um, no, you know what? Neelix is another character who... I, I like some of his early stuff on Voyager, but he becomes kind of unbearable as the show goes on. And it doesn't feel like they know how to really write great stories for him. Often he just pops up and says like one or two lines in an episode. So I think on DS9, they would have actually looked at that character, probably his tragic backstory and said, what can we do with this? Cam, can I put you on the spot? Um, can you name more episodes from season seven of Deep Space Nine that you like versus season four of Deep Space Nine? It's pretty even actually for me in terms okay. of like favorites. Yeah, it really is. I think what we have to establish probably here though is that I think we have to have seasons four and seven right next to each other in our rankings. Now, what order they come in is still undetermined, but I think it's pretty clear these two go next to each other. Look, I don't want to make a boring list and I feel very confident putting season seven just like a splinter below mm -hmm. season four like i'll make that argument there can you kind of do, do you feel guilty about doing that ranking even though i i know your initial thought was you know maybe season four next after season three um i can i can understand it and i think that I'll say the things that season seven has against it, because I said what season four, you know, is lacking is obviously we don't have the Dominion story as much this season. But season seven, we have um, the loss of Jadzia throughout the season. Obviously, Ezri takes over and I like Ezri Dax, but you do lose a little bit of something not having Jadzia see the journey through to the big finale. Um, you also have the Paw Wraiths. And the paw race. A lot of paw race. You have a lot of paw race. Uh, Gul Dukat is not that great in season seven. Nope. <laughs> the greatest enemy in the history of Star Trek is like, you know, <laughs> looking at magic books through much of the season and start starting a cult. <laughs> so, Same with the second greatest um, antagonist, which was Kai Wynn. She's spending a lot of time looking through magic books, too. So... Maybe it's not even <laughs> fair to, to dismiss the Klingon arc when maybe the Klingon arc is done better uh, than the ongoing Pa-Race story is in Season 7. Okay. So yeah. I, I think that's fair. So why don't we say that I guess Season 7 does come in at, I guess, what, slot number 4 then? Okay, well, maybe but before we move on, a couple things about Season 7 that I, I want to ask you about, though. But, mm -hmm. like, I think the introduction of Ezri Dax... That is pretty much like best case scenario 
considering everything that had gone on the preceding six seconds, uh, six seasons in which you are so invested in a fan favorite character. And I think they bring in somebody who actually brings something new yet familiar to the character. And so I, I really have to, you know, tip the hat to one Nicole DeBoer, as well as the writers, like trying, trying to be legit invested in this brand new character who they knew would only be around for one season. Yeah, because a lot of shows, if they brought in a replacement cast member in the final season, that character would get minimal episodes or screen time. You know, think of that yeah. dude who replaced Eric on that 70s show. <laughs> Seth Meyers' brother. Uh, the I'm worst. on his name. Yeah. The worst character ever created, I think, made one of the worst yeah. in modern television to replace a cast member. And I mean, they kind of didn't give him anything to do, rightfully so. But you look at what they did with Ezri. They invested. They gave us our prodigal daughter. They gave us, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the field of fire. Like, they gave her standalone stories that maybe some of them weren't great, but they were invested in making us like this character and care about where she was going to go in one season of television. So I give them a lot of points for that. They, they even gave her a satisfactory conclusion with Worf, where she's just like, look, you had your thing with... Jadzia, we gave it a brief shot. It's just, it's not going to work between the two of us. We are two different individuals. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think many people that I've encountered who are fans of DS9, you know, regard Esri with any sort of ill will, which is not the case for a lot of shows where they do recastings or what have you. So uh, I think that's a, a, you know, kind of a feather in the hat of the DS9 writers. Um, also notable this season, Paper Moon. Uh, the yeah. Nog story, and just everything leading up to that, the Siege of AR-558. Um, they're doing war stories that are incredibly powerful. And, uh, I mean, what can you say about, you know, it's only a paper moon at this point. It's one of the great character episodes in the run of the series. And we talked when we did the rankings of TNG, and you got to Season 7, <laughs> about all of those great character-centric stories they were doing in Season 7 TNG, like Interface, and the one where Picard had a son, you know, like these were not great episodes. <laughs> Whereas yeah. it feels like when you look at season seven, DS9, they are still doing great stories. How would you have felt about the series if we got the Benny Russell ending that Iris Stephen Bear wanted, but Rick Berman nixed, in which we eventually found out that the entire series was just Benny Russell writing a story and would have ended with like him putting away his typewriter and taking off his glasses? I think you would have a real split in the fandom. Half that think it's the worst thing ever. Like it's a genius show up until those final few seconds or whatever. And then you would have the uh, opposite, the contrarians perhaps, who are just like, no, that's what the show always was. And that's why it's genius. Do you really think it's 50-50? I think it would have been like 95-5. Yeah, okay, maybe. But I think the ones defending the um, Benny Russell ending would be very loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Cam. We're in the home stretch here. Uh, what is next for you? I'll just go through the rankings for those that may not recall. But um, from worst to first, we have seasons one, two, three, seven, four. Mm -hmm. And what is next for you, sir? I was just curious, sorry, before we move on, if there was anything else in season four that jumped out to you. Because we kind of cited the, uh, you know, the big highlight episodes. But if there was anything else that season that felt important or, or noteworthy. 
Well, yeah, you know, those big highlight episodes I mentioned, you know, like uh, Bar Association and Little Green Men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of know, course. Big highlights. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. What about you? Is there any final thoughts you have on season four that you wanted to share? I thought um, for um, um, for the cause is really noteworthy for the Edison material that's going to pay off big later on going forward. So that was one that really jumped out. The I will say the one thing that kind of was a negative for me on season four, the home front paradise lost two parter is, isn't the genius it should be. It's okay. And it never really kind of delivered on what was promised later on in the series. So, mm-hmm. But anyways, yes, the next in line. So this is where it gets tough. Um, Okay, okay. Hmm. So I think for me, I have season five next. Mm, I have season six next. So maybe we can kind of hash this out uh, as we uh, get into the home stretch of our episode here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think season six has such a hard job of living up to the expectations of call to arms and i think they delivered for the most part Mm -hmm. look you might have an episode like sons of sons and daughters but i'm kind of okay with a a smaller episode like that you get a bit of the hangout factor a lot of it's kind of silly with a lot of the zial stuff and the uh, alexander rojenko stuff but it gives you a little breathing room after you've like you come jumping out of the gates with you know time to stand followed by rocks and shoals where you're telling like these really interesting war stories yeah and i look at this season as so eventful we get finally you know the kira odo um coupling after his way uh one of my favorite lighthearted ds9 episodes um uh, tears of the prophets maybe not everyone's favorite season finale with the death of jedzia but very notable um but to me, like in the pale moonlight, such a crucial episode. This season to me just feels so special. Also, Waltz, which I feel like is the the final great, um, you know, uh, Galdicott story with him and Cisco in the cave. Uh, Magnificent Ferengi, maybe the best Ferengi episode. Like to me, this season feels so eventful that I find it hard not to really go to bat for this one. Um, Far Beyond the Stars, which very special episode as well. I don't know. This is why I struggled so much with six versus five. I, I, I can't disregard any of those episodes that you brought up, but I'm thinking about this up the season more holistically. And we ultimately conclude with, you know, Tears of the Prophets. Mm-hmm. And even beyond the terrible, terrible way that they, you know, concluded Jadzia's character, I just... the the victory over the chintoka system didn't really do it for me the way that you know the preceding finale did where we have the loss of deep space nine i get what they're trying to do they're they're trying to show that the tide is turning on the dominion war and that we've got the romulans behind us you know maybe it's not going to seem super silly if all of a sudden the federation does prevail in one year's time but it's just like it just it seemed more contrived to a certain degree and jadzia's death you know, it, it just, it really soured me on what they had been building up to. Even though, look, you kind of like are telegraphing things with, you know, sound of her voice. You know, like, you mm-hmm. know, that we are going to have to deal with losses uh, of people that are very close to us. There's a lot of, like, very solid things going on. But I ultimately think season five, just like from episode to episode, it, it's so much more consistent. And there are all these fantastic standout episodes strewn in between you know some pretty solid episodes too 
this was a case though where both of them in my you know good column was like a huge chunk like there's obviously the ones that all stand out with the the best of the season rankings you know that's pretty even but like there was very few bad or even middling episodes only a couple like for season five i had like rapture and frankie love songs were kind of in the eh and then let he who is without sin being at the you know bottom tier but that's what three out of 26 or something and that you know it was like that with season six as well where it was only like um you know obviously profit and lace is the real um black mark against um season six but they are two incredible seasons of television i'm gonna make my argument for season five cam and it it seems like such an obvious argument you know but i i just go to the finale Mm -hmm. you know with call to arms which i think we agree is the best star trek finale ever I can't imagine it ever being knocked out of the top 10 of all-time Star Trek episodes, and we've had like 800 episodes at this point here. Um, But even smaller episodes, or seemingly smaller episodes, like the ship in which they have to capture that Jem'Hadar ship that had crash-landed, it pays off, you know, and those are tough stories to watch, you know, not tough in that it's excruciating because it's bad, it's just like it's really showing you like how far these characters are willing to endure things for what they believe in in federation values you know and of course we are starfleet cam that's that's what uh jedzia was screaming the entire time uh when she was going through you know the blood loss on the ship but obviously cam cam trials and tribulations uh, like you've got the uh, in Purgatory Shadow by Inferno's Light two-parter, mm-hmm. one of you know my favorites, uh, you know uh, hidden gems of an episode, Children of Time, Empok Nor, which is just a fantastic yeah. O'Brien versus Garrick, and then you even have like the light kind of episodes. You know, you've got something like In the Cards, which is leading up to that very heavy finale. I'm just like, season five is just like a season that just keeps delivering one after another until that final build-up, you know? Like, I just, like, I I ultimately am just pushing hard for season five at this point, even though I, I, I totally get what you're saying, where, like, there's so many important episodes going on through season six, but I'm not let down by any measure by the time we get to the end of season five, where I feel a little bit let down by the time we get to the end of season six. Well, that is very true. I mean, if you're going to rank them on going out strong, you cannot argue against season five. It's and, and We are ranking the seasons, regard. you know, yeah. and yeah. seasons have a beginning, middle, and end. And that's really kind of what I'm, I'm making the argument for. Yeah, and season five does open with Apocalypse Rising, which was in my hell yeah column. Because again, this is the whole crew and Klingon makeup. It's incredible. Um, season five also has the resolution to all the Eddington storyline. So there's great stuff in this season. Like I'm not arguing that it's it. Oh boy. I just find this one so tough because it's basically like which masterpiece is better than the other. Well, okay. I, I come down on like, if I can only have one season of deep space nine Mm. on a desert Island, and that is the only show that I ever get to watch again. I, you keep building up with so much great stuff and you ultimately get to call to arms. I would much rather have that in my, you know, little hut on that desert (laughs) Island than I think season six. That's my argument there. Although I think in those cases, um, if you only have that one season, either way, you're ending with a cliffhanger, which would be very frustrating. (laughs) 
I, yeah, and I have no idea how. I'm just like, oh, I guess Deep Space Nine is gone to the uh, the Cardassians and Dominion forever. Oh, there you go. Although you would probably think uh, at that point, I guess Cisco is going back with that whole fleet to take it back because that's the only ending I've got. Well, the other alternative is, yeah, I guess Cisco's shucking clams for the remainder of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I forgot about that. I was only thinking about the Jadzia death. Oh my god, that would be an amazing ending to a series. Like, if that had just been the ending of the show, with Cisco doing that outside a restaurant. What would you prefer, that that or Benny Russell? Yeah. Um. Okay, like the Benny Russell one, I would watch and be like, well, boy, that's not the way I'd end the show, but I completely understand how they got there. Um. The, the shucking clams, I would just be like, I have no idea what they were thinking. All right. I, are, have, have I moved you at all in my arguments? Uh, like, are, are, are you uh, willing to consider maybe a season six followed by season five ranking? Or are you still a little bit kind of firm in, in what your initial thoughts were? Well, I think I'm really, really torn, too, because season six saw the return of Burial. Um, mm, mm. So that oh, really you know, does You've convinced me. You've yeah, convinced that weighs, me, weighs heavily. Um Actually, I think you've just um, cemented my argument, Cam, (laughs) why season five is superior. It is interesting just the the trajectories of these seasons, though, where, like, season five feels like it's really building towards something much darker, whereas, like, season six feels a lot of, once you get past that arc at the start, it feels like a lot of kind of, like, happier stories that are going to turn into darkness by the end. Um, It it will lead into the finale. Uh, But... It's really tough. Like, I I completely see the reasoning of season five ending, especially with the way it does. Um, So I think I can sleep okay if we have season five at number one. It's it's to me like they're so close. If we were um, more loosey-goosey with the rules, it would be like tie or something. I could totally justify that. But in this case, I think that works. Season five followed by season six. Uh... Or you mean like uh, season six followed by season five in terms of our in terms of our rankings? Yeah, yeah. Number one yeah. being season five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just picturing you waking up in a hot sweat because you uh, regret ranking season five slightly higher than season six. I'll be like, is that the vaccine or is that my rankings <laughs> of DS9 seasons? <laughs> no, it's the vaccine was ineffective, Cam, and you've just got COVID-19. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think that's the way to go, I think. Let's let's okay. do that. Se- season 5 as the best season of DS9. Okay, so we, uh, I'll do the rankings, and then maybe I have like kind of one final question that I want to ask you here. But um, ultimately, we decided uh, from worst to first, uh, we go season 1, season 2, season 3, season 7, season 4, season 6 season five now cam i want to know like we had a little bit of a debate you know a couple episodes ago deep space nine is an ensemble like no other like more than any other star trek show but do you ultimately come down on it being a story about odo or a story about cisco in in which they are the key character because i feel very conflicted because i i want to say that the answer is cisco but we ultimately ranked Odo as a better character than Cisco in our rankings a couple weeks ago. And I wonder if it's 
it almost feels like it should be Cisco because that's the way that the writers are paying tribute to, you know, the top build cast member here. But it, it was always Odo's story that kind of drew me into the overall mythology of Deep Space Nine. Like the, the Dominion stuff, the Changeling stuff, more so than the, the Bajoran, you know, emissary and prophets sort of stuff. But so much of it comes down, though, to kind of being the story of Bajor as well, though. Yeah. With so much with Kira and, you know, the decision at the end that Bajor isn't going to join the Federation. Like, it feels like we've been building towards that throughout the whole run. I've always struggled with, like, whose story DS9 is because it is such an ensemble show. I, I guess it is Cisco being the lead of the show, but I don't... Hmm. I don't know. It's... I think probably you would argue that maybe Odo is the more compelling central focus of the show if you're going to pick your focus. But it's kind of open, I think, to the viewer because I think there'd be other people that would very much come down on, you know, Kira and Bajor maybe by the end because she's the one running the station at the end. It's probably just like a a futile debate or just maybe a dumb question. Maybe I'll I'll Mm -hmm. lean towards the latter because it is just such an ensemble drama where like all the pieces really do matter here. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it is a very special Star Trek show that one that I don't think we'll see recreated in our lifetime. Uh, no, Cam, uh, Star Trek Picard season two. <laughs> That's the one Chakotay is going to pop up in. <laughs> I can't wait. Isn't he dead by now? Like uh, based on the finale of Voyager? Uh, well, we don't know, right? He's the one that we actually don't know anything. They Well, they didn't really explain his death in Endgame, did they? No, no, it was yeah. just like they got back and um, that, what was the reason? Did they even explain how he died or like why he died? I don't think so. They're just visiting like his like grave, you know, it was weird. Yeah, yeah it was like, weird. We do know that Tuvok needed to get back in time to get treatment for his degenerative, you know, disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I It could have been like a you know, phaser fight, or it could have been like a uh, rando, you know, Picard has a brain disorder. So when he crash lands on the orchid planets, uh, he's suddenly <laughs> dead. Yeah, maybe. Because when you look at that alternate future, you can at least get a glimpse of where these characters could potentially go. But with like Jakote, I have nothing. I have absolutely no idea where this guy's going. Well, I'm glad we we're able to devote so much time to Chakotay in our Deep Space Nine heavy episode here subspace transmissions this is the place to come for more chakotay talk even when it seems impossible (laughs) okay so i think on that note our assignment is complete if you enjoyed listening to this podcast we want to hear from you jump on over to the facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod let us know your ds9 season rankings we'd love to hear them tyler what are we doing next time Cam, I guess I alluded to it uh, a little bit ago, but uh, finally, you know, five or six years later, uh, we are going to do our follow-up to Hidden Gems. This will be Hidden Gems Part 2, and those episodes that are just exquisite, but they don't get their due in all of Star Trek. Mm, I'm looking forward to this. It's been a little while since we did Part 1, so... (laughs) Just a little while. Maybe we'll just pick the same episodes and see if anyone notices. Probably not. Do you think anyone would notice? That's a sad thing. (laughs) Okay, on that depressing note, you can find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in Vortex, Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, 
N as in nitpicker's guide. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.